0: Welcome back to The Goddess Crown. Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Uh, today, we have back with us Carl Fabritzius. Welcome back, Carl.
1: Thanks. Good to be back again.
0: Today, we're looking at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, sometimes the genealogies are the things that we just kind of skip over. But, Carl, you have a different perspective here. You uh, want to make us slow down and read through them to see exactly what Matthew has in store for us throughout the rest of his gospel. So uh, take us through the genealogy of Matthew.
1: Well, you know, I am kind of strange. I like all these genealogies <laughs> in the Old <laughs> Testament and the New, but this one especially is a lot of fun. I always used it in uh, my catechism class in 7th and 8th grade with uh, the schoolchildren Um that I had more than one day a week. So you have three days a week in class and you can do a little bit more. It was helpful to do this in connection with uh, the teaching of the second article. I'd use this and then Luke. Luke, you have the sacrificial stuff, which uh, was a lot of fun. And you emphasize the importance of the sacrifice. With Matthew, you've got this faithfulness of the Lord to the promise, but you've also got the interesting way of the rebellion of Israel is in the midst of this, and you've got the the different ways you can sort of approach the text, because you've got so many historical situations to talk about when you just have these verses. Now, in general, you want to remember that it's 14, 14, and 14 with regard to the generations. That really is nice to remember, because... You've got really 14, and I think I've said this before with you, but you get the 14 uh, sons of Israel, so to speak, because Joseph isn't listed, and he gets two. So you have mm-hmm. Joseph kind of admitted, and yet Joseph here is so important, too, for this genealogy. Then you have 14 when you get to the judges, and there's one bad judge, the son of um Gideon who appoints himself, and then you get uh, really 14 apostles in the New Testament because you get uh, Judas hangs himself, and then the apostles pick one, and God picks Paul. So you get 14 there as well. A nice sort of sequence that dra- draws us into the whole thinking of even people like Augustine, who thought in terms of this being like... Uh, a sign of the different ages the old testament church the new testament church and finally we'll reach 15 and that will be the end of all things and the return of christ will come uh kind of i know bizarre for modern american thinking but helpful in terms of looking at this whole construction i think there there's always something going on and whether you might like my reasoning or not, it is important to sort of delve into it, force yourself to ponder it a bit. So there's that to start with, but then you get the very beginning where it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but then comes the two important phrases, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the whole language of the Old Testament pushes you towards thinking of the son of David, but... With the son of David, you want to think not only about David himself, this is my beloved son, uh, kind of thing, because he was the one that the Lord loved in the Old Testament. And yet, so was his own son, Solomon, um, who's named Jedidiah, loved by the Lord. So the focus on David and his son leads you to think in terms of kingship. And right away, Matthew in the second chapter is going to have Uh, the language of the wise men coming and seeking the king of the Jews. And at the very end of the book, of course, the emphasis upon his kingship. So you get a chance to delve into this with the children and have Mm -hmm. them thinking in terms of this. Now, this, by the way, is good for adults too, this basic introduction to Matthew. Force them to think in terms of what was going on just in the phrase son of David and remembering how important that is david who is the true king to which every other king is to be compared and yet david who gets the promise that he will have an eternal throne and so that becomes important as well then the odd birth of solomon odd in the sense of his mother's womb is opened in response to the mourning period of david so that bathsheba's womb is opened and here comes solomon but even with Solomon. His entrance to the kingship, he's going to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem after he's been anointed. And so the remembering these stories, remembering what's going to happen in the life of Christ, he's going to ride into Jerusalem in Matthew 21. His entrance will be a joyful one. Hosanna to the son of David. The whole emphasis Matthew wants to draw, here's why Christ came. He came as the son of David to enter in as the one who is the true king. But his kingship is going to be really marked in a different way, ultimately, because he's taking the place of David, of Solomon, of all of us to atone for our sins in his death on the cross. So the son of David leads you to talk about all of that with children, with adults, and you haven't even gotten past the second half where you get the son Mm -hmm. of Abraham which is a nice Trini- Trinitarian kind of reference we want to think about because Abraham, who is the father of many, is the one who has a son, Isaac, who, by the way, brings laughter and brings laughter into our lives. Yes, it's a reminder of Abraham and Sarah's own sort of doubts they had, but ultimately there was true laughter in Isaac. And for us, there is the greater joy of the death and resurrection of Jesus. First, there is this sort of sorrow over our sin, and then comes the good news that by his death, he's atoned for that. And by his resurrection, he, in fact, gives life to us so we can have eternal joy. We can have this laughter in our own lives. Abraham, of course, received the promise, just as David had a promise. So right there at the beginning is the promise language that is so important. Um, You're going to get this whole idea of chapter two. You'll have um, the going down into Egypt and the son being called out of Egypt. And the promise is going to be emphasized as we get through the book by women. And so even in the genealogy, you've got five women in the genealogy. You have a parallel throughout the book that there's five important events with women as well. So before we talk about the women in the genealogy, you could kind of look at the young girl and the old woman story that shows up, a nice two-women story where you get really the old woman who reminds us of the Old Testament and how the faithful looked forward to the coming of Christ. And the young girl reminds us of those who are new in terms of the New Testament who both are centered on Jesus, both looking to him alone. Then comes that wonderful Canaanite woman story later where she comes and implores him to do something for her daughter. And it seems that it's kind of that odd story where Jesus seems to put her off and put her off, but it's really about her ongoing faith and the fact that this is the way in the world we too need to be like this woman faithfully crying out, Lord have mercy, because she's repeating that cry again and again. And this whole idea that he is the son of David who comes to bring that mercy. And then you get another woman who anoints him in preparation for his death. And then finally, you have the women at the tomb. So you've got five sort of woman stories that parallel the five women at the very beginning. And, of course, each of them involves a uh, each of the tombs, the tomb and this particular culmination here is linked with Mary. So there's a nice structure to all these events that pulls it together. And even as you get to the end of the gospel, you have the story of the uh, wise and foolish virgins that you can kind of look through and see, here's this split again. Those who are faithful cling to this. Those who are not you know, turn aside from God and his word. You need to be more like the Canaanite woman who shows up, of course, for uh, the one-year series anyway in the midst of Lent. So we get that whole emphasis on bearing the cross, crying out for mercy, and always clinging to the one who brings that mercy ultimately. But uh, all of that in terms of just looking about the woman, Sequences Mm. here. Yeah. Even in the beginning, you have that story, you know, of Rachel weeping for her children, which is really interesting. And, uh, but let's go back to the, I'm getting sidetracked, which you know I have a problem with.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So before we keep going, uh, like the very third word or the second word is, uh, a geneseos in Greek, the genesis uh, translated as genealogy. Is there any sense in which Matthew sees himself as um, like starting a new Torah, uh, like the beginning of the, the the time of God's work now in and through Christ in building a a new creation, so to speak?
1: Yes, I'm glad you actually you brought me back to that. You know, I get those distractions and wander off. But uh, that whole Genesis type of language is very important in terms of, he doesn't mention Adam, he doesn't mention creation here, but he's really taking us back to that just by the usage of it. And the genealogies all along, even that first genera- Genesis uh, genealogy where, of course, and he died, and he died, and he died. The constant repetition, repetition. But here is the new book, the new Torah, the revelation of everything that was promised to Adam and Eve. That here in Christ, we're going to have someone who, yes, and he died, but there's life. He brings life with the resurrection. Because it's not just going to end, and he died. Now, even there in the midst of that Genesis one, you get the wonderful Enoch account, of course, that he walked with God. And mm-hmm. here's the one who truly will walk with God, sort of a Psalm 1 figure, um, you could say, who is the fulfillment of all the book of Genesis and everything that God wa- that God wanted to give us, life uh, in that creation account. So yes, this is the new creation. This is now in Christ, this new Way that has been prepared for us.
0: Well, that's that's rich. So we get the the son of David and everything that you've mentioned, and then the son of Abraham. Um, why don't we delve into the verse two then?
1: Well, Abraham, you have the um, really two men here. Abraham is the one who is faithful, and yet you have to consider. You have the promise repeated three times. Um, He's promised the land as well. Uh, You have him, however, struggling with that promise. You have the unfolding of having a child who is not of Sarah, and that's not the right one, who is not the child of promise. And so Isaac becomes the important child of promise, the son of david is ultimately or son of abraham excuse me is ultimately a revelation of what must happen to this one abraham takes his son out to sacrifice him but he's not sacrificed instead there is the ram in the bush there is that connection to christ on the cross the fact that you have a replacement so the replacement language very important. Even as back to David, of course, Solomon in a sense is a replacement for the son who whom he lost, whom we never hear the name of. I mean, that son of David is never given a name for us. Instead, hmm. we have the one whose name is revealed by David as Solomon, and Solomon meaning peace, but by God as Jedediah, the one loved by the Lord. So with isaac you have this wonderful son who is going to be then given a wife in very old age and given children in very old age and all because the lord is faithful he has to open the womb of rebecca eventually in response by the way to isaac's crying out for the womb to be opened So there's Mm -hmm. all these ways, and Rebecca comes to him at a well. Um, Well's not as big a deal in Matthew, so you don't really get that language. John has, of course, the important well story. Um, But all along, they are related to the shepherd kind of uh, language as well.
0: So, in other words, in recounting this genealogy, Uh, calling forth the imagery of Genesis and the creation account. This is all, uh, I guess, preparing us for the opening up of the womb of Mary by the word of God through the angel.
1: Yes. Now, in the ancient church, is that a good term to use anymore? I don't know. Uh, In the early church and certainly the medieval church, there was this whole way of catechesis and talking about the uh, eight holy wombs, Mary's being the ultimate, but you had the opening of wombs along the way as a reminder of God wanting the promise to be fulfilled. And even here, well, you get the Tamar story, where Judah, he and his wife, uh, that he took, who he took a wife of course from the pagans around him, and she was a problem, but He takes a wife for his son, um, and oddly enough, you have that wife becomes the faithful one who actually believes in the promise, the promise of a son to be born, because she is more righteous even than Judah. I mean, Judah's sons are going to be wicked, even though Judah is a line of promise. And to be wicked, I take that especially because, of course, Onan spilling the seed. But they reject the promise. They reject the fact that there is going to be a son born who is the one who will be the redeemer, who will be the one who brings life instead of death. And so their wickedness means they've turned to the gods of the land and have rejected the very essential promise. I mean, the failure of Onan, he just refuses to give a child to to Tamar an heir, and that means... He's killed just like his brother Ur. And ultimately, Shua will be passed over for the promise, or Shela, excuse me, will be passed over for the promise. And it's all because Judah's sons have taken after their mother and have gone for the gods of the land. And hmm. they have rejected what they should hold on to. Judah is sort of shaken by all this, Uh, He, of course, has been a bad example. I mean, the reason he gets Tamar pregnant is because he's worshiping a false god. She is dressed up like she's one of the prostitutes uh, that is at a shrine. And Mm -hmm. she evidently knows the unfaithfulness of her father. So you bring that in, and it all becomes a good thing to talk about in terms of especially when they're in 7th and 8th grade, but as adults too, a reminder of look how easy it was you have judah who should have been sort of in a household with faithful people uh, faithful father anyway should have been had the word handed down to him and yet he turned away and his sons had turned away and so the importance of this handing down the faith and constantly being vigilant is to be seen In the story there, and of course, you know, that really was there already because he says that um, the text in verse 2 is Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Well, Jacob, you know, the one who was the deceiver, the sort of going through that life story, and then Judah and his brothers, a reminder of the two sisters really lurking in the background, but Judah and his brothers, that's the language of Genesis, And how Judah and his brothers deal with Joseph. Joseph, who is the most important figure, really, of Genesis because of his savior role. Uh, It's maybe a word some people don't like to use, but I think you've got to use it. He's the savior, really, of the line of the promise and is used for that very purpose. There, of course, that Egyptian connection and Jesus going down into Egypt and having to be brought back. You've got Joseph being the father. And I like Joseph especially as the name of Jesus' father, because what does Joseph mean? You remember? Increase. Yes, increase or add on to. So what's going to happen is ultimately this one child who really isn't, you know, Joseph is not really his father. The text is clear about that. But Joseph is the one who is the one who's going to have him under his care, that is the reality that it will be added unto. Now, the promise to Joseph 2, uh, the promise of adding unto would indicate, if you want to go this route, that Mary having more children after the first one, you can take that, especially because you have language later in Matthew that leans toward that. Although, you know, I'm not going to hang my... <laughs> hang my head on that, and say it has to be that way. But right. it is something that you start speculating about these things, and you do find so much in the name Joseph that is good to look to. Now, back to um, the beginning. Let's see, we were with Tamar and that righteous account question.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so the uh, there's another Tamar that happens within David, not mentioned, it doesn't look like, in... The that part of the genealogy, um, is there any connection there to to the two?
1: Yes, there is actually connection. The fact that the sister of Absalom is named Tamar, uh, you can see that the history brings the name back. Tamar, who was this righteous one, uh, Tamar being a daughter of David. And being one who would have been named as part of the line, to see that in terms of perhaps in the line of promise as well. But she's outside that promised uh, line in the end. But they don't know Mm -hmm. that for sure. After all, would you have thought it'd be Judah? He was number four. Um, That works well from looking back at it, because the fourth one in the gospel kind of language But would you have thought it'd be Judah in view of the fact that his mother is Leah? You know, not the favorite. Rachel Mm -hmm. is the one who's the favorite. You'd think that that would have been where the favorite, uh, the line of promise would come from. But no, it's the one with weak eyes. And yet this is the Lord's way of working beyond what men understand. And Mm -hmm. the same as with David, you know. David is the one that is chosen by the Lord when his brothers looked the part. So this way that God brings forth time after time the unexpected and does it in terms even of the birth of Christ, because who's Mary? I mean, we know nothing about her other than the fact that, I mean, later people make up stories. Okay, fine. (laughs) But really, she just comes out of nowhere here which isn't that surprising. I mean, think back to the mother of Samson, who, you know, not even named, uh, mm-hmm. but think, to, think about Tamar. Her family history really isn't there or anything. We know she's one of the uh, neighbors, one of the pagan neighbors, but it is purely because she heard the word in the household of Judah that she becomes the one who strives to fulfill the promise and becomes more righteous. And it's then her child uh, who is going to be the heir and the one who's in the line, the ancestry of Jesus. So this way that God works in ways that we do not comprehend. We're always trying to figure it out, trying to lay it out the way it is. you know. And this is one of the great things about reading Solomon's books. It reminds you, you can't control these things. <laughs> There is no way that you are in charge. You just hand down. You do the the handing down, but you have no clue what's going to end up uh, in the future. Um, you can have a household of one child or 12 children and hand down the faith. The same thing. Let's take the 12 children. Every child gets the same thing. And yet you never know which ones are going to hold on to the faith. You hope all 12 do, mm-hmm. but you can't always tell that. And right. So time after time, the Lord is the one who reminds us of that in the history of uh, the history of the promise and the history that you see in this. Abraham all the way through David and the descendants, the 314s here, mean all the different examples that are given there of people who were unlikely tomorrow and then the next one being Rahab. I mean Rahab, how she fit in? She's a prostitute or was a prostitute who repents. In fact, has this wonderful confession of faith to the spies. She says that, you know, this is the God who led them through the wilderness, kept them safe, and knows, she reassures the men that, in fact, they're going to crush the city of Jericho. And mm. that's important in terms of looking back at Israel's history. Remember the spies came back and said, Oh no, there's no way. The cities are too big. They're too mighty. They have giants in the land. There's no way. And of course, Israel believed that report. But now here is this woman who had been a prostitute, who in fact is a Canaanite woman, a nice connection to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, and who has this wonderful confession of faith and then becomes this wonderful sign of God's deliverance with the scarlet cord, a nice blood reference, and points us, of course, even there with that reference, is a reminder of the end, when Christ, who comes, has to have his blood poured out, and in him, we're rescued from the midst of the city. I mean, he has to go outside the city, and Mm -hmm. is offered up there. The spies have to be hidden in the city, and then they come forth. And, Finally, you have the conquering of Jericho and Rahab. Then of all people, even with that life, inner repentance and faith is joined to a man of Israel and becomes part of the line of the promise. It, again, this is nice because with kids, you get to talk to stories, figure out, do you remember the story of Rahab? Do you remember the story of Tamar? And then the next mm-hmm. one, that beautiful story of Ruth is thrown in there. So mm-hmm. do you remember the story of Ruth and talk about the Moabites? And the Moabites had been cursed. Now, Ruth and Rahab, both especially, but you can use Tamar, are all part uh, of talking about Matthew 28, 19. Because okay. it is that the ultimately, nations. yes, that here is the one given for all men, that in fact, even in the Old Testament, the people of Israel should have paid attention to the fact that though they were the chosen line. Really, all along, God is offering to save all. In fact, back to that reference, the first promise to Abraham. Remember, it's all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through him. It's not just the family of Abraham alone, but all Mm -hmm. the families of the earth are going to be blessed because of what will come forth in the line of promise. But often, it was this focus of, You know, we're the chosen ones. But the question is always, chosen for what? And this genealogy here is really saying, you were chosen so that through you, salvation could come to many. And with Ruth, the Moabite curse that is put on them, and yet Ruth becomes this faithful one who moves back to Bethlehem, brings us back to the city, and the focus on Bethlehem. And Bethlehem had come up before, remember, uh, already in the days of uh, the death of Rachel, she dies outside Bethlehem. And you have this link that takes you to the reality of from the story of Ruth and how a child was born. And Ruth, of course, is a kinsman-redeemer story. And ultimately, Christ is our kinsman-redeemer. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He really is the Son of Man who has come for our redemption, to seek and to save the lost. And it's the lost of all nations, not just the limited. And um, so those three important women there, very key to looking at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, and talking with the children about that promise being fulfilled, which was given to Abraham.
0: So we kind of skipped a little bit over like Perez know. and Hezron and Ram. <laughs> and... Ab- Aminadab. Um, is there any major events around these guys? Um,
1: the birth of Perez and Zara, of course, the important birth uh, because there you get the twins but really these guys are all kind of, in. they're just the reassurance in re- repeating their names that God was faithful all along. I mean, you can go into the birth of Perez and talk about Mm -hmm. how that happened but that that isn't really I think as significant as other things now you start getting more important when you get Boaz and of course his connection and then Obed um, is born and you can talk about Boaz and being out in the field and uh, the way that he acquires you know a wife as the kinsman redeemer um, I think that's Bera's time, but uh, Jesse and how many sons Jesse had, that's important because he has eight. David is the eighth in a good mm. new creation kind of image, and he's the one who is out in the field with sheep, which mm. becomes very important, uh, not just for David, but it was already important back with uh, uh, Abel and the connection to sheep or we could talk about Abraham, and you could talk about Mo- uh, Moses and the fact that he's out taking care of sheep. Um, and of course, you don't have Moses in the, in the genealogy because he's not one of the immediate ancestors, but he's kind of lurking in the background over all of this uh, because he's the one who has recorded these words of the Torah, to go back to your earlier comment, and set mm-hmm. this forth for us um and you get to the major figure part two david who begot solomon by her who had been the wife of uriah Mm -hmm. so here was this you know the repentance cry because david is ultimately you know the one who killed uriah he is the one who committed adultery he is the one and yet who repented and he became the key figure, the one that God always says his heart had been faithful, you know, because his heart, which for, had lived in unbelief even for a year, is the heart that repents, is broken, and cries out for mercy. And so talking about David and this wife of Uriah narrative, uh, important in there, again, the implications of the wife of Uriah is Bathsheba, from outside of uh, Israel. I mean, you can make the argument Bathsheba means the um, daughter of daughter of Sheba or something like that and say, hmm, is she an outsider too? I mean, that would fit well in terms of uh, looking at the other women in the narrative because the others were from different nations and everything. But again, that's kind of a, that's an iffy one. So, mm-hmm. it's something to sort of maybe say it's possible, but we don't know exactly. Um, so, she's, you know me.
0: she's unnamed, uh, kind of like the Canaanite woman unnamed.
1: Right. Nice connection to that. And so important, though, this wife of Uriah is also the one who has to come to David in his old age and say, hey, you were supposed to crown Solomon. Have mm. he who comes with her? Of course, Nathan. Nathan, yeah. the prophet who confronted him, is there, and the wife of Uriah, is there. Both of them are key to the recognition of who the real king is supposed to be, who the one was that God named Jedediah, and who should be in that line, so that they plead on the basis of that. Now, you can go sort of medieval here at this point and sort of make this argument that, uh, She acted sort of as the church, pleading for her children, crying out for her children, much like Rachel in chapter two. Eh, I like it, but I'm not going to probably preach that often in Bible class. I'd do it, but uh, not really something I'd preach.
0: Yeah. So uh, Solomon, you already mentioned the which means peace, but also God calls jedediah uh, beloved of the Lord. There is this that I had never made the connection between the kingly statements, son of David and my beloved son being uh, you know, David, who is beloved by God because he has a heart after God's own heart, and then Solomon being Jedediah. I never made that connection. Um. So when we hear both at the baptism and the transfiguration of our Lord, this is my beloved son, we should see this as his anointing as king, right?
1: Uh, Yes. This is the real David now. The real son of David, I promised. Here he is right before your very eyes. But it's more than that because Mm it's also saying to us, hey, in baptism – I'm making you the son of David. I'm making you those who are joined to Christ. I'm taking you as the ones I love, just like I took Solomon in all Solomon's you know, messy life. Mm-hmm. So God takes the baptized and brings them closer to him through these ups and downs. And yes, we recognize like Solomon in his old age, that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That in fact, this is the way we are in the world. We think things are so important, especially in our youth. We are really proud of ourselves, and we're doing the most incredible things. And as life goes on, we realize, well, maybe it wasn't so incredible. <laughs> um, so, And then, of course, the fact that it reoccurs in Matthew at the Transfiguration is an ultimate reminder of how we are to be brought into the divine This glory there is going to be ours. And Mm -hmm. we who are human, who are men, will be brought into the divine and have all of this as our own glory by virtue of Christ going down from that mountain where he only gave them a brief show to the mountain of his crucifixion. And then to the mountain at the end, he calls them out to a mountain for his ascension. So there's a connections throughout the Gospel of Matthew to that. There's also the importance of Solomon with the temple, and Jesus being the true temple and, well, the speech about the temple in um, Matthew 24, where you'll have that language, um, mm-hmm. is a Solomon connection as well.
0: Yeah, well, then you get the whole uh, specificity with the angel, the unnamed angel, we presume Gabriel, on what this child should be named. And that whole connection when Solomon is building the temple, uh, you know, you're so big, God, how are you going to dwell here? Um, I'll put my name there.
1: Yeah. And so here the name is placed directly. And uh, the fact that Joseph, son of David, is given that assurance to take Mary, um, because she's already, there's already the conception has taken place. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's reflected as well at the end of the uh, genealogy, because Joseph, the husband of Mary, and then in English, as we all know, it's not quite as obvious, of whom was born Jesus is the link to the feminine, Mary. That's the one through whom Jesus was born, not Joseph, even Mm -hmm. though all along it's begot, 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 begot. At the end, Joseph does not beget Jesus. It is Jesus who is born of Mary, who is called Mm -hmm. Christ, the Christ, Mm -hmm. the anointed one, uh, the culmination of the promise of an anointed one. And uh, that good link there that draws it together at the end
0: all right, so then you've get the uh, Solomon, father of Rehoboam, uh, the the king of Judah, but the first king under the divided kingdom of Judah.
1: Yeah, you know, the you have the division that's going to come, and then you see these sons who are kind of a mess. Rehoboam, <laughs> uh, you know, then comes Asa though is mm-hmm. a pretty good one with Jehoshaphat, you know, the one that everybody thought I should name my first son Jehoshaphat. No, <laughs> didn't happen. Um, and, but Jehoshaphat is faithful, except what did he not do? It's that thing. He didn't tear never down the high
0: places.
1: That's, he didn't turn down the high places. I mean, he's commended. And so is his father Asa, but they don't tear down the high places. Now you reach Uzziah, and you have a guy who's does some good things. Of course, at the same time, he's the one that turns his back, and after his many years of doing good things, he's the one who has then to be given leprosy by the Lord, and mm-hmm. is confined. And um, Uzziah connected connected with the early days of um, Isaiah the prophet, and you have then you have some down again then you Mm -hmm. get hezekiah shows up in there and hezekiah one of the key kings uh, along the way the story of you know the challenge outside uh, the city the way that many are slain by the lord the fact that hezekiah is the one who's faithful and yet he what's he do he shows off the things in the temple to the babylonians which he shouldn't have done because that Shadows what will happen later That they'll come and take everything out of the temple um, So Hezekiah's very interesting stories Plus he's the one who shows up in the book of Isaiah as well Which is just intriguing You not only get him in the Kings and in the Chronicles But you get stories, a story in Isaiah the prophet as well Which doesn't happen as frequently And Isaiah in particular, he it flows out of those uh, interesting judgments. And here comes the story of Hezekiah. And mm. Hezekiah repents, though. And you have the wonderful shadow retreating backwards on the stairs story. And it's how many steps? Oh, I don't recall. It goes backwards 10 steps. A nice, nice <laughs> touch there because that's connected to the way of the law and its condemnation. And now he gets this judgment of he'll live again for another uh, uh, all of a sudden I'm having old man syndrome, 15 years he'll get 15 Mm -hmm. years more and uh, so you'll get that 15 which I brought up earlier uh, as being sort of a culmination Uh, but then you came Hezekiah's son is then a mess again with Manasseh and one of the most wicked and yet Manasseh too has that wonderful repentance story at the end, um, Amen Adenda. The, of course, you don't get named. Who's the woman not named that is so important in this uh, story of the kings at this point?
0: Is it the is it the queen's mother who hides?
1: Yes. No. Uh, well, it's the I queen's mother who's killing all the sons.
0: Killing. That's right. Killing all the sons.
1: <sighs> yeah.
0: I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. I, I'm getting old Athaliah. Yeah, Athaliah. Athaliah is the
1: parallel, of course, to um, um, Jezebel. She's sort of the Jezebel of the South. Um, she just slaughters all, but the, you have the faithful um, Jehoiada hides him in the temple to protect him. Nice language there in view of the temple and the importance of Christ. And so you have a king who is eight years old in Josiah um, we uh, have the story of him and his reforms Hezekiah and Josiah both of course the reforms regarding the temple the celebration of the Passover in connection with those kings so you, uh, they become very important in the narrative if you want to talk about uh, Jesus ultimately and the Passover that comes at the end of the book of Matthew that in fact, you're looking forward to that even when you go through the history of the kings. You've got mm-hmm. some nice Passover references.
0: So it ends with Jeconiah before the deportation.
1: Right. Okay. Talk about a messed up family. Josiah's yeah. sons are just a mess. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's they, you end up with the first one is made king, but he's then. Uh, you know, taken into, put in prison. And then he's actually carried off to Egypt at one point. The second one is uh, not such a good deal either. And you have them being carried off eventually to Babylon. So the sons get carried off. And uh, yet Zerubbabel, very important there, because Zerubbabel is the one who's going to be sent back with the people in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little bit of reference. You can draw that in. Look, they were sent off to captivity, but God sent them back again after 70 years, just like he promised. Then you have these people who are just sort of, you don't know who they are exactly. You don't have a lot of details.
0: Um, Yeah.
1: But it's important that you know they're in the line.
0: Yeah. So... you know th- throughout this you you mentioned how you get to the the actual discussion of the birth of our lord and it you know changes to the the feminine version because it's coming through mary but you know throughout the genealogy that we've discussed so far you have um like you know a, a faithful son uh who's then a father, and then you have unfaithful sons. And so you've got faithful sons, unfaithful sons, faithful fathers, and in some cases, unfaithful fathers who, you know, don't, perhaps you could say, you know, aren't raising up those who follow after them in in the way of the Lord, uh, or follow the Example: The worst examples of their lives, instead of the the, the angels of their better nature, so to speak. Uh, to what extent does this kind of build and crescendo then with uh, Joseph, who is not Jesus's biological father, it, to the point where um, he is a faithful father, and he, Jesus is a faithful son to Joseph, and God is a faithful father, and Jesus is a faithful son to God.
1: Ultimately, that's what you need to see in the text, because Joseph, even the fact that he's declared a righteous man or a just man, think about, well, the story of Noah, for example, who was found to be righteous. Um, why? Because he actually believed the words of the Lord. And you mm-hmm. see this with others as well, I mean, even with David. The fact that he is, Joseph is in that line of David and faithful to the words. Now, we know very little about the fatherhood and what he had other than, of course, Luke, but can't really bring Luke in at this point and talk about it. Well, you can, you can always bring that in. But um, the reality is that ultimately the one who is the father of all these, Going back to Abraham, who was the father of many, now there's a greater father, and he that father sent his own son in the flesh to be born of a virgin and to be the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, you'll notice the Emmanuel is given here in Matthew's gospel, not in Luke's gospel. And God with us is also the language of Matthew 28, 19. You can make an argument there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can make the connections back to that end because God now is with us and still is with us. We can connect Emmanuel uh, to his coming to us in not only baptism, but at the altar, how he has attached himself, his own flesh and blood to the bread and the wine. So we eat and drink uh, for the forgiveness of sins. So these things become well, and to name him, Jesus, uh, The Lord saves, a nice connection there uh, to looking at the Joshua narrative. We're not going to look at that today, but how he leads them into the promised land. Even um, you can make the argument, sort of that connection at the end. He is the one who's on the mountain, ascending into heaven, even as he sends them out to leave Israel and go to the ends of the earth, baptizing. And what does he say? I am with you always. God with us. And once he's taken on flesh and blood, he is always with us, and with his people, who have been made beloved sons. Because we're baptized into Christ, we have this gift given to us, and we're called to be faithful. You know, back to that, it is not just sort of opening the doors to say, "Okay, we've got it all made." It's a reminder we need to be faithful, because so quickly the faith was handed away. And then, even looking at the history of the church. Reminding ourselves, look what's happened generation after generation. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, the Missouri Synod, we were kind of boastful. Look at our growth in the 50s and 60s and how we're just sailing along. But look at us now. Look at us sort of going along. Do we have still the Lord's word? Yes. Do we have multiplying numbers? Do we have multiplying congregations? Have we got, you know, all the people packing church every week? No. Now, part of that is, I know, the fact that there are fewer uh, children being born, etc. But it's also a result that the word of the Lord eventually is going to be dried up. It's a warning to all of us. Look, read this genealogy. Know how God was faithful. Know that he has given us his own son, God, with us. And in him, we have what we need. Now, the conception is by the Holy Spirit. And so the connection to your baptism You had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. As a child of your father and mother, you needed to be born in the way that Jesus was in a certain sense. That is a conception as a child of God born in the waters of baptism. Um, So all these things come around at various times and make great catechetical material when you're talking with children now. You do discover that, of course, some of your classes, and I've said this before, I'm repetitive, I'm old. Uh, some of them will be much more sort of in the stream of thought than others. It varies, just like your adults when you teach a adult Bible class. Sometimes they're much more in the stream of thoughts than others. Um, when you're teaching your children at home, some of your children will be like right on track and others will be a struggle. It just mm-hmm. is always the way it is, but we just have to continue handing down these things. No, not everybody is going to be excited about this genealogy like I can be, you know, taking apart the kings, looking at this and seeing certain things that are, you know, getting fascinated by the eight-year-old king and then the whole king of the Jews language. So not just an eight-year-old king, but an infant One who's in his very early days, you know, whether it was two years old or whatever the uh, exact age was, it's still that he's already the king and he's recognized as king by the ones who kneel down. And the language even there is going to be prophet, priest, and king language. The fact that you've got the three gifts, who cares how many wise men. Let's talk about the gifts. That was the historic thing. Talk Mm -hmm. about him being prophet, priest, and king on the basis of the the gifts. You went, yeah. and You were talking about how some of the kings were faithful. What was often the case with those kings? They often then had faithful uh, priests who served and directed them. Uh, Jehoshaphat makes sure there are judges appointed over the land, but he puts them under the authority of uh, the priests, the high priest and his people, so that they look after the ways of the Lord's words. Um, interesting connections in terms of that, too.
0: Okay, so in that second ha- – in the in the, the third generation, the third 14, you've got some – you know, Zerubbabel, he's the guy in Nehemiah, right, who takes up the the throne with uh, a ruling. But you also get mention of, like, Zadok and then Eliezer. Are these um, – there's a Zadok the priest is this the same guy or in other words do we have like the first half is kind of the prophet the second half is king and the third half gets into the priestly nature of things or is that is that not quite it
1: i don't think that's it um because if you're in the line of judah you you know the priesthood has to be in the levitical line right um, So no, Uh, sometimes it gets confusing on these names because many people are named the same name. Even that Tamar case where you had two Tamars involved, Mm -hmm. uh, one earlier, one later. Um, You don't get a David again, um, even though you do get Jedediah, but you don't have that usage of that name. But the repetition sometimes of names along the way you have to sort through who's what. And uh, the important repetition of a name here in this one, of course, is Joseph, Mm -hmm. Um, Judah and his brothers. And then Joseph sort of at the beginning, beginning, you had that Judah and his brothers. Then you come back at the end and get Joseph and uh, he becomes, he watches over. You could say Mary much as Joseph in the end, watches over his brothers. Uh, They come, they don't recognize him and, he becomes the one who uh, eventually reveals himself. So uh, Jesus is the one who reveals himself to his brothers, and they don't recognize him.
0: Yeah, and even Joseph's father is Jacob. Yes, <laughs> Joseph, the adoptive father of our Lord. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this brings us to so the fourteen generations. From Abraham to David, from David to the deportation of Babylon, and then from the deportation of Christ, these three sets of fourteen generations, uh, you said, line up with the 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 patriarchs or, or the sons of the sons of Abraham, being fourteen, not including Joseph, but but his two sons as they divide up the land. Uh, so that includes all of Israel. Uh, but then even within that, you mentioned Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, so on and so forth, all nations. Um
1: you, know, you get five women, which of course is a nice Torah number, the books of Moses, mm-hmm. you get the five important women. Um, you get fourteen again, which is a reminder of the fourteen judges and fourteen in terms of apostles.
0: So the the that is the moving forward. That there's going to be 14, 12 plus
1: 2. Yeah, a nice connection yeah. to that. Okay. We all get uh, confused because the apostles jump and make their own choice, and then God appoints one yeah. as a replacement, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that is a nice connection, though, to to Joseph. There's an increase. You know, there's a, an adding on to. So it's not just a 12. Yes, yeah there's a, a multiplication of uh, of people and gifts and so on yeah so in terms of this genealogy you had mentioned at the beginning the emphasis is on his his kingship right not as a oppo- as opposed to the uh, the sacrificial language in in Luke um why is this so important for Matthew and perhaps his audience, as opposed to what Luke is trying to do for his audience?
1: Well, Luke, most likely, because he was a traveling companion of Paul, you have all those Gentiles involved. Here you have Matthew, who's concerned about the Gentiles, I would argue, too, because of the Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and the fact that all along you have this connection with the women, that kind of thing. Um, but certainly the, to go back to that Genesis language, the fact that the Torah and all the old Testament is bound up and pointed us to this one birth, the birth of Jesus Christ, because Genesis three fifteen is about a birth. Genesis 11 is, I mean, 12, excuse me, is about a birth. Well, actually it's about a birth in after the flood. It's about a birth then with, uh, all those afterwards Isaac and the old age and birth given Jacob and you know for all his manipulations and his deception and yet he's the one who wrestles with God and is called Israel and who's given these 12 sons and the mess of the 12 sons and yet all along you have this us to Christ the ultimate son who will be again sort of cast off by his brothers like Joseph was and yet who becomes then a great ruler in Egypt who uh, is second only to him. And so the son ascends to the right hand of the father. And of course, he is the one uh, who is to be the king of all and sit at the right hand of the father. Um, hmm. So that the conclusion at the ascension is taking that you know nice uh, language as well, Psalm 110. Uh, which, by the way, gets quoted, you know, at the end, not the very end of Matthew, but, uh, you know, shows up there. Um, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And what are the Pharisees going to say in response to that kind of language?
0: Right, right. Crucify. Yeah. Yeah, this is good stuff, Carl. Thank you so much. Any final thoughts?
1: Never neglect asking questions about genealogies. Uh, because they do, they're always an important teaching device when they show up. Not just the obvious, that is, God is faithful to his promise, but also a reminder of how God is the God who worked in the midst of the people and who ultimately then becomes God with us. You know, the The importance of that can't be underestimated. And when you neglect the genealogies, you're also seeing something about the bible you're seeing that maybe maybe some of it's holy and some of it's just you know not not important at all yeah and the truth is it's all there given us by the holy spirit to cause us to what to search the scriptures so that we become those who learn the truth by searching the scriptures compelled to figure out okay so i don't remember who joram was what do i have to do I have to go and look at at his story and see what was going on in Israel then. I have to go look up some of these people and sometimes they have multiple names, which then we have to look at as well. Um, The importance of Babylon showing up in the text. All these things, God bringing forth out of all this, good things. So look at the genealogies and say, hey, is there really something to learn from this? Should I pay attention to this listing of sons? And, you know, also notice that typically it is only a listing of sons. So if you see a woman in the listing, you better pay more attention because there must be some reason the woman shows up in that point.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time and uh, look forward to chatting with you again.
1: Oh, so do I.